As we prepare this morning to read God's holy and errant word, let us turn to the Lord in prayer and seek the Lord's blessing of our reading and hearing of his word. Creator God, you remind us that the darkness of ignorance and doubt cannot overcome your life-giving word. May your Holy Spirit, who first inspired these words of Scripture, shine your light and once again awaken us to the hearing and living of this radiant truth. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture reading this morning comes from the gospel according to Matthew chapter 25 and verses 14 through 30. Hear the word of the Lord. It is written, For it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more, but he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here... You have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness, in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now to him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ, be all glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We come this morning to our final sermon of our summer sermon series on selected parables. 
And it is appropriate, I think, that this parable be one from Matthew 25. In a section of Matthew's gospel where we find several parables, all of which relate to the second coming of Jesus. We've already earlier this summer looked at the parable of the ten virgins, which immediately precedes our parable this morning, which is often called the parable of the talents. And while we took a slightly different slant on the parable of the ten virgins as a parable of wisdom and judgment, these parables are all ultimately about judgment. We should notice that our parable this morning immediately precedes the passage on the separation of sheep and goats. So our final parable finds its context in the final judgment. But if we were looking at this parable removed from its scriptural context, we would say that this parable is about stewardship. And we wouldn't be wrong about that. It is about stewardship. So even as we need to see here what God says about stewardship, I think that the parable's scriptural context should help us to think about stewardship a little differently. At least, I hope it helps us to think about it a little differently. You see, stewardship is a topic that can easily get relegated to one particular season in the life of the, the church, in which the local church begins its budgeting process for the upcoming year. We call this stewardship season. When churches send out pledge cards and encourage members and regular attenders to consider how they will contribute and commit themselves to supporting the church financially. And I don't want to belittle this process. It's an important spiritual practice for us to think about our financial giving to the church. It must be done prayerfully and intentionally. And we should seek to be cheerful givers, as the Apostle Paul encourages the church in Corinth. Now, it's been my experience that this church is filled with generous and cheerful givers. And you are to be commended for the ways in which you have supported the work of the church financially. But even so, this parable has something to say to us. And the fact that it finds its context in the final judgment has a way of elevating the importance of stewardship beyond the church's budgeting process and beyond what we do with our financial resources, although those things aren't unimportant. Rather, this parable demonstrates the importance that God puts on how his people use what has been entrusted to them. So what I want to do this morning is to give a few simple principles that we find within this parable regarding stewardship. And we must begin with the first verse, verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. Whose servants are these? The master servants. And whose property has been entrusted? the master's property. From the very beginning of this parable, Jesus makes clear that everything here belongs to the master. And there shouldn't be any confusion about who the master is or who the servants are. God is the master and we, his people, are the servants. So principle number one, 
everything we have belongs to the Lord and has been entrusted to our care. Everything we have belongs to the Lord and has been entrusted to our care. Scripture does not mince words about this truth. Psalm 24 states, The earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. As the creator of all things, God is also the owner of all things. And it isn't just our material possessions. It is everything, the fullness thereof, as Psalm 24 says. This includes our very selves. And this is especially true for those of us who have been redeemed, purchased by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. As the Apostle Paul reminds the church in Corinth, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. And if we are to be good stewards, then we must get this first principle, since this is what stewardship is. It's the management of something that belongs to someone else the managing of that which has been entrusted to us. And this might seem very obvious, but we will never be good stewards if we slip into the mentality that everything we have is ours. We earned it, and we can do with it as we please. This is the attitude that must be guarded against zealously, for it is the prevalent attitude all around us in the world. But have we really come to possess anything by ourselves? As C.S. Lewis correctly observes in mere Christianity, every faculty you have, your power of thinking or of moving your limbs from moment to moment, is given you by God. And if you devoted every moment of your whole life exclusively to his service, you could not give him anything that was not, in a sense, his own already. Therefore, you couldn't have earned anything if God had not given you the ability and the opportunity in the first place. And we need to often remind ourselves of this truth. And this isn't meant to make us resentful toward God or to see him as a harsh owner who makes burdensome commands on us. He's not a harsh master that isn't what Jesus is communicating here about who God is toward us. Look at what has been given. Verse 15. The servants are given talents by their master. If you remember from last week, a talent is a fairly large sum of money. One talent is roughly equivalent to 6,000 denarii. And one denarius is roughly equivalent to a day's wage. So this master has entrusted his servants with no little thing. Even the servant who has received only one talent has received a substantial sum. One talent amounts to what would essentially be a lifetime of wages. And Jesus' original hearers would have understood well what Jesus was saying. The master has generously given to each of his servants. And indeed, the testimony of Scripture is that our God is a gracious and generous God who not only cares for his creation, but entrusts to those who have been created in his image the sacred privilege of managing what belongs to him. 
We see this from the very beginning of Genesis when God places Adam in the Garden of Edom. Adam is instructed to work and keep the Garden of Eden even as this garden provides for Adam's every need. Adam is given a tremendous responsibility here, a weighty charge to manage and care for what belongs to the Lord, but it is also a blessing to Adam. Well, let me ask you this. How much more? How much more has God demonstrated his graciousness and his generosity in giving to us his beloved son? There is no deeper goodness than the one who freely gives himself over to his enemies in order that they might be reconciled to him. But not only that, they are also adopted as his own beloved children and made heirs of his kingdom with his son by whose blood their sins have been forgiven. And we should see here in this parable that God's initial act is one of grace. Only after God generously and graciously gives of himself does God then command us, his servants, to be responsible stewards of that which has been entrusted to us. So God grants to us the gift and the privilege of managing what belongs to him, and this is no little responsibility. And it leads us to our second principle. Since I've already mentioned that what is entrusted to the servants in the parable is financial resources, it's important to recognize that Jesus does not intend to limit stewardship to material wealth. As we have already said, all things belong to God. Therefore, stewardship applies to every aspect of our lives. So principle number two, God calls us to be responsible stewards of all that has been entrusted to us. God calls us to be responsible stewards of all that has been entrusted to us. It's no coincidence that we call special abilities talents. The word comes from the Greek word found in this parable. It is recognition that it is more than just money that's being spoken of here. The parable then is also speaking of our use of our God-given abilities, our talents, our spiritual gifts. The scriptures teach us that we have all been given different abilities and we're told to use them as they have been given to us. The Apostle Paul says to the church in Rome, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. We are to seek to use the gifts given to us and to grow in them, to perfect them. And Paul also makes clear that the church is only functioning properly when God's people are using their God-given gifts. He describes us as members of the body of Christ, each of us functioning as a different part of the body depending on the gift given to us by God. And each part of the body is indispensable. The good stewardship of our gifts then is vital for the the functioning of Christ's body in the world. 
But it isn't merely our worldly wealth or our spiritual gifts and abilities. Sometimes our gifts and abilities afford us with influence and power. These two belong to the Lord, for Scripture tells us that it is God who has placed people in positions of power and influence. They, too, then should be used diligently. And what about the gift of time? The gift of time. It, too, is a God-given gift that has been entrusted to us. For Scripture tells us that it is God who created time. And has numbered our days. We are told then to number our days aright. In other words, be good stewards of the time granted to you by the Lord. The reality is that we live in a time and place where we are all affluent in the gift of time. So this parable is challenging us to consider how we are using all that we have. As Charles Spurgeon once said, hast thou time? Hast thou wealth, influence, power? Hast thou powers of tongue? Hast thou powers of thought? Art thou poet, statesman, or philosopher? Whatever be thy position, and whatever be thy gifts, remember that they are not thine, but they are lent thee from on high. No man hath anything of his own except his sins. We are but tenants at will. God hath put us into his estates, and he hath said, Occupy till I come. All the honor of our ability and the use of it must be unto God because he is the giver. The parable tells us this very pointedly, for it makes every person acknowledge that his talents come from the Lord. But even as we acknowledge that everything we have comes from the Lord, let's also acknowledge that the Lord has blessed us in different ways. We see in this parable that the servants have been given varying amounts. And this is our third principle. Principle number three, we are not all entrusted with the same gifts. We are not all entrusted with the same gifts. This is an important thing to acknowledge. While the world around us has its ideas about equality, we are reminded by the parable of God's sovereignty. And we can complain about what has been given to us, But as the Apostle Paul states in his letter to the Romans, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? And while the context of what Paul says in Romans concerns God's sovereignty over our salvation, we can apply this concept more broadly. We're not told exactly why the servants in the parable have received differing amounts, except that to each is given according to his own ability, or literally according to his own power. Does not the Creator know his creatures well enough to care for them and provide for them in ways that are unique to exactly who he has made them to be? Any of us who have children know that we love our children unconditionally and without fail. But we love each child differently in ways that are unique to him or her. So what scripture makes clear here is that each of us has received as the Lord has ordained in his sovereign wisdom. But the point that the parable is stressing here is that the master only expects his servant to be a good steward 
over what has been given to him. In other words, the master doesn't expect a return that is not in proportion to what has been given. And this should be a freeing truth for us. The servant who only brings two talents is not chastised for not bringing five talents like the first servant. No, he's commended in the exact same way as the first servant is commended. Look at what is said to both of them. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Each is rewarded. So we're meant to see here that we aren't called to account for that which has not been given to us. Just because we don't produce as someone else is not the issue. Again, we're all given different gifts and abilities. And there aren't just different gifts. There are different levels of gifting. This means that not everyone is meant to do spectacular things for the kingdom of God. Not every preacher is a Charles Spurgeon. Not every teacher is a Sinclair Ferguson. Not every evangelist is a Billy Graham. Not every theologian is a John Calvin. But all are called to make wise use of the gifts they have been given in proportion to what they have received. And just because we might not have gifts that others have or to the same degree that others have them does not mean that what has been entrusted to us is unimportant or insignificant. The fact is that someone who has been given much, much is expected. It's harder to put to use many gifts for God's kingdom than it is to put to use a few. And so if you've only been given a few gifts, how much easier should it be to make good use of them? This means that many of us will only do seemingly small things for God's kingdom. You might not be able to hold an audience captive like Billy Graham could, but you might be just the one who is called to share your faith with a coworker or a friend. And you might not be called to a life like Mother Teresa was, who gave her life caring for and giving dignity to masses of dying people in India. But you might just be the one who is gifted to make a meal to share with someone who is hurting in your community. Perhaps we should listen to the words of Mother Teresa then, who said that not all can do great things, but all can do small things with great love. This brings us to our fourth principle. Principle number four, we are called to use our gifts for the sake of building up God's kingdom in the world and giving glory to God. We're called to use our gifts for the sake of building up God's kingdom in the world and giving glory to God. What's happening here in this parable is not simply a business transaction. This isn't the show Shark Tank where one wealthy investor decides to take a chance by investing in the business of someone who seems to have a profitable idea. No, this is the God of all creation entrusting his beloved image bearers with his generous grace in order that he might in turn receive the glory he is due. 
And again, we should see here the privilege we have been given to serve him in this way. God has ordained that we, the church, be his witnesses in all the earth. And therefore, he has ordained that it be through us his name might have renown in that people of every nation and tribe and tongue might be called to worship him and glorify him. This is what, this is the means by which God has ordained to work out his plan of salvation. Have you ever thought about what it means here that talents are being made? And we can look at this transaction that is occurring simply as business. Talents have been entrusted. These talents are put to use, earning and profit, gaining profit, proving that what has been entrusted to the servants is being used for their master's benefit. And this interpretation would fall within the Greek word for the word made. I have made five or two talents more. And certainly, we want to prove profitable in our faith. But I think it's more than that. You see, the Greek word for made can also be translated as one. And I think that there is some sense here that we are, put, we are to put our God-given resources to work for the sake of growing God's kingdom by using our gifts in ways that others are drawn to him. We are, as it were, winning souls for Christ, who in turn will receive glory. As the Apostle Peter says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. We are teaching, we are preaching, we are serving. Why? In order that the saints grow in maturity in Christ and might be equipped for the work of ministry, certainly. But also that the good news of Jesus Christ might go out and souls might be one to God's kingdom. He has ordained that his kingdom expand by way of us. That is a mighty, mighty responsibility. But it's also a mighty privilege. This leads us to our fifth principle. We are not to hide then what has been given to us by God. We are not to hide what has been given to us by God. And the time has come to address the third servant. What did he do? While the others went away and put their talents to work, the ser third servant went and hid the one entrusted to him. And why would he do such a thing? In the name of playing it safe. Remember that from the parable of the hidden treasure that it was not uncommon to bury money or valuables. This was indeed the safe course of action. But it does not prove to be the faithful one. And notice that the third servant claims to know the master and to act in accordance with the master's character. He says, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. Now we need to understand what's being said here. Essentially, what the third servant has said is you are a sovereign master who does whatever you want, so you don't need me. But further, I was afraid of reporting losses to you, so I took no risk and instead kept your resources 
safe. And when it's put like that, it seems sort of pious, right? It isn't a bad thing to recognize God's sovereignty. It isn't a bad thing to be humbled before the Lord and realize that God doesn't really need us. It isn't a bad thing to fear the Lord. But the master lets the servant know in no uncertain terms that this was unacceptable. Dearly beloved, how easy is it? How easy is it to wrap a bad conscience in what seems to be good theology? How easy is it to wrap a bad conscience in what seems to be good theology? Well, I didn't want to say anything because I was afraid that I might say the wrong thing and lead someone astray. I didn't evangelize because I know that God is sovereign and he will bring those whom he has called to himself regardless of what I do. I'm saved by grace through faith, so I know I don't really need to put a lot of effort into seeking to grow in faith because I know God will persevere me to the end anyhow. Is this our mindset? And there does seem to be some bitterness and resentment in the servant's excuse. He essentially blames his master for his own failure. Look at what he says. It was your fault I was afraid and hid the money. Where have we seen this before? Well, the woman you gave me handed me the fruit. This blame shifting is not new. It's been around since the first man. But we have to particularly be conscious of the temptation to this sort of thing because we live in a world that encourages victimization. And when everything is unsafe and everyone is out to get us, it's easy to excuse playing it safe. But what is really revealed isn't that the servant had a good understanding of the master's greatness, but that the servant was simply lazy. He didn't believe that the master didn't need anything. He just didn't want to do anything. And no doubt, the third servant is meant to sting the religious leaders of Jesus' day who had refused to acknowledge that God had called Israel to be a light among the nations and had decided instead to keep the gifts of God all to themselves in the name of protecting them. But this isn't how God's gifts work. God's gifts are not just for our benefit. They are for the benefit of others and for God's glory. So this parable also speaks to those of us who have become content enjoying God's blessings all to ourselves. Jesus calls us not to be of the world, but he does not call us to remove ourselves from the world and to become insular. To believe that piety is accomplished through withdrawal. As one commentator stresses, talent means mission. It means moving out beyond ourselves. And this parable tells us what our Lord thinks of playing it safe in the Christian life. It tells us that any church community that decides to withdraw in on itself rather than seeking to advance God's kingdom will find only judgment. Only those who are willing to lose their life for the sake of Christ will find it. And only those who are willing to pick up their crosses are worthy to follow him. 
Discipleship is not a life of playing it safe or trying to preserve God's gifts for ourselves. This leads us to our sixth principle. Principle number six, we will be called to give account for what has been entrusted to us. We've been dancing around this truth, but the fact is that the parable confronts us with the reality that we will all stand before the Lord as individuals and give account for our actions. And God will not tolerate our excuses. What have we made of what God has generously given to us? And it might be that we were given much and squandered it in the eyes of the Lord, chasing after our own ambition. There have been men and women in history who had great talents, great influence, great power, great wealth, and used it for their own pleasures. Or it could be that we don't think of ourselves as though who, those who have been given much, and therefore that we, in our little place in the world, don't make any difference in the eyes of the Lord. And this parable flatly rejects that thought. Or it could be that we have bitterness in our hearts to the commands of Jesus. They seem burdensome to us, so we choose to play it safe instead. Regardless of the reason or excuses, we will all be called to give account, whether it be for much or for little. This parable is yet another warning that the faith we profess must be revealed in our stewardship to be a faith that we possess. Otherwise, we who call ourselves servants of the Lord will find ourselves on the wrong side of eternity. And finally, our seventh principle. We had to go to seven because it is a biblical number of completion. Principle number seven, to those who are good stewards, more will be given to you. To those who are good stewards, more will be given to you. Jesus concludes this parable by saying, for to everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. This is part of the reward of faithful stewardship. God gives us more gifts and more opportunities to serve him. As one biblical commentator notes, in secular life, it is the already busy who are asked to do still more. It is the law in the world of discipleship, too, that the disciple who lives zestfully is given more ways to serve. And if we are true disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, opportunities to use God's glory, to use to God's glory what has been entrusted to us should be a source of great joy and excitement. We see that in the first servant. It's not a source of dread or drudgery. These opportunities that are given to us are not meant to be a burden, but as a great privilege to give glory to the Lord who has freely and generously given himself to us. And so I pray this is how we at Covenant Presbyterian Church would respond to God's grace given to us. I pray that we would answer the call to use all of our gifts, willingly, joyfully, and generously. And to God be all the glory. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise that you are the giver of every good and perfect gift. And Lord, we especially give you thanks for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. 
who has lived for us, who has suffered for us, who has died for us, and who has rose again for us. Lord, we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit that he sends to us, who unites us to him, makes us co-heirs with him, fills us with fruit of the Spirit, and gives us gifts to serve your kingdom. Lord, we give you thanks for using us as your people to expand your kingdom. Lord, help us to be good stewards of all the gifts you have given as we acknowledge that everything belongs to you. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's now stand and affirm what we believe using the Philippian Creed. Dearly beloved, in whom do you believe? We believe in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven.